Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a podcast promoting an inclusive, non-dualistic, compassionate perspective of the faith journey. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined today by Sue Wilton, one of our regulars. Thanks for your time, Sue. Always good to be here, Dom. And uh, we have a very special guest all the way from halfway around the world joining us on the On The Way podcast today, Professor Alan Cherry, the Professor of Systematic Theology at the Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey, uh, author of By the Renewing of Your Mind, The Pastoral Function of Christian Doctrine and God and the Art of Happiness, uh, here to speak with us today, I, I guess, about happiness and its role in the faith journey. Thanks so much for, for making time for us, Ellen. Thank you for inviting me. We might just start, I mean, obviously we are going to discuss happiness today, and, and I imagine that's a promise we can make at the start here, that if if you listen to this podcast, you'll be happy by the end of it. That's, <laughs> we'll give you the secret to happiness. That's in the next hour or so. Um, but before we get there, you are a theologian. You, you, that's what you've, you've given your life to. A lot of people might not understand what that means or what the function of theology is. Can you just, um, I guess, speak on that a bit? Thank you. That's a really good question. And uh, theology is a very strange notion to many people. And um, my own definition of theology that I follow, which may not be that of other theologians, theologians are people who help people, sometimes help the church help people, know, love, and enjoy God better so that they may contribute more effectively to the communities that they belong to. That's a great definition. <laughs> I think that would motivate a lot more people to go and do theological study. So what motivated you to, to do it? What was, what was the trigger in your life that pushed oh, you in that? That's a very interesting an important question for me, actually. Um, I was not raised in the Christian tradition, and I was in another theological tradition, and I saw problems there, and I wanted to help correct the problems. Theology is often spoken about as being of two types, apologetic theology and constructive theology. Apologetic theology is to be an attorney for the tradition. The attorney function is to protect it from onslaughts and question, hard questions. But the constructive part is to be the physician of the tradition, and that is to help it address its own internal problems. And I saw that in order to be the attorney for the tradition, you must also be the physician of the tradition, because questions that people raise about the tradition from outside are the same questions that people inside are struggling with. And they're real questions, not simply to be combated and shielded yourself, shielding yourself from onslaught, but to correct in order, take seriously the criticisms that come from outside and using your opportunity to read more than most adherents have time to read in order to correct and thereby defend the tradition. There's so many things we could discuss in this podcast. Um, you, you've lived a fascinating life. You've seen Martin Luther King uh, in person when you were a teenager. We were discussing that before we started recording, and I'm sure we could almost do an hour on that alone. <laughs> um, yes. But but uh, we, we are going to focus, I guess, 
on happiness, which is a concept that people probably wouldn't associate hearing much in a, a faith journey. Weirdly, it's it's almost um, disregarded or, or spoken poorly of the pursuit of happiness, the idea of happiness, that it's too fleeting or maybe selfish. As a starting point, before we, we, we work on recapturing this word happiness, um, why is this something that you've given so much of your time to? What, what was it about this concept that, that fascinated you? Well... First of all, it's not the alien concept that most Christians would think it is for the tradition. The first word of the Psalter is happy. <laughs> and it's th- and that's translated from the Hebrew, of course. The first word of the Beatitudes in Matthew is often translated as blessed, but the Greek text that the New Testament people were working from uses the word um, beatitude, beatitudinus, beatitudo, which means happy. What happened, though, for Christians, they allowed the biblical word to remain as happiness as if it were something secular. But when they put it in Matthew's mouth, (laughs) it comes out as blessed. (laughs) So to be happy is to be blessed. And I think the Beatitudes, personally, I think the Beatitudes are patterned on Psalm 37. And there, and throughout the Hebrew text, this word ashray, happy, means blessed. So those who are blessed are happy. And the Beatitudes say that this blessedness requires a rigorous way of life. <laughs> and, um, and that's the interpretation of happiness that I gravitated to. The, the Greek word that connects the two translations is makarios. And, um, and I think... I think that's more helpful than either than separating happiness and blessedness as if one is from God and the other one is not. <laughs> it's, it reframes how you view a lot of it, I guess, if you were to read the Beatitudes as happy instead of blessed, because I think blessed has come to mean if you live this way, you will be blessed eventually. Whereas if you say happiness comes this way, it kind of... The happiness comes from the act rather than reward from the act. Correct. And that's a, that's a key difference, isn't it? That's a key ch- yes. shift in thinking. Yes, it is. And that's exactly what I intend. That a way, the way of life that I think Christianity and in their own ways, Judaism and Islam are advocating are to live enable a happy life, a life of contentment with self, a life that enhances the world and enhances the well-being of other creatures, not only other humans, but of all creatures. And in that way, we participate in the redemption of the cosmos intended by God. It shouldn't be a revolutionary idea to say that a faith life is about giving you your most flourishing uh, most abundant life. However, it seems that, that that is not what is spoken about often. That is not what is what is largely uh, offered. Um, Sue, so what do you see the alternative that's offered is? It's, it's largely based in uh, the need to sacrifice, the need to give, 
the need to submit um, all things which have their 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 place certainly and, and can be quite beautiful things. But that is the whole focus of a lot of what a faith life is marketed as, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I, I think we've had a, a trouble ever since the idea of, of of Calvin's total depravity. I think of of trying to think that self sacrifice is the only way of being that um, that. It's about that selfishness it, to actually claim happiness, to start to claim any sense of, of well-being and purpose and fulfillment you know, for yourself is inherently selfish. And while you've got that idea, then that leads you to the kind of self-sacrifice that isn't the kind of sacrifice that we see when we see Jesus, I don't believe. I think there's, we, you know, the idea of self-sacrifice is one that um, tends to be a duty-oriented one. There is, there, it, it isn't marked by joy it's often not even marked by being voluntary. Sometimes people find themselves in situations they can't control or they haven't designed for themselves and they are suffering, but they think they need to just stay there because that's part of the Christian ethic of self-sacrifice. The other thing it does too is, you know, Jesus talks a lot about growth and he talks a lot about, when he talks about his own death, he, he talks about a seed falling to the ground and dying and then it will bear much fruit. And for me, one of the, one of the marks of the right kind of sacrifice is actually that it causes more flourishing, it causes more abundance, it causes growth for others. So someone has once said that, um, you know, instead of saying, will this make me happy, um, a better question might be, you know, does this make me larger or smaller? And when you look at the life of Jesus and the sort of sacrifice involved there, it obviously you know, it's something that made was larger, you know, that, that here we are followers of the way of Jesus in love and in truth and peace. So the kind of thinking that, that Jesus is a model for miserable duty or um, self-sacrifice that is inherently about suffering is, is way off the mark. And, and I think we need to correct that in our Christian thinking. I've been trying to do that in my books. <laughs> I agree with you completely. Um, some of this is modern, and some of it is throughout the Western tradition. It's primarily in the Western tradition, actually. And, um, but in the ancient church, this notion of spirituality requiring self-sacrifice to this extent of self-annihilation, self-abnegation was Calvin's word. But it, it's not in the ancient church. It's really not in, even in Augustine which is where a lot of people think all the problems in Christianity come from. And that's a, that's a, full, it's, it's a partial reading of Augustine. And Augustine wrote a great deal about happiness, several treatises, not a separate treatise, but scattered throughout his major works. And um, selfishness was not associated with, um, with happiness and uh, well-being. That came much later. But I think Augustine did recognize, and one of his major points of his ethics was to utilize self-control, to control elements of our personalities that are destructive. And learning self-control is not the same as self-abnegation or self-denial, that it came to be, pick up your cross and follow me. Um, and that became what we call agapistic ethics. Agapistic ethics is an ethics of self-sacrifice. And it goes all the way back. And it is in the Bible. It, the word agape appears a few times in Paul. 
And this notion of self-sacrifice, you know, when I say to people, what do you hear from the pulpit? Give and give and give, and when you have nothing else to give, what do you do? And en masse, they all say, you give some more. And that's what, that's agapistic ethics, is an eternal self-sacrifice, and that that's supposed to make you more pleasing to God. And I, in my book, God in the Art of Happiness, I offered an alternative to that. There's another ancient alternative to that. So I was trying, the, the alternative to that is eudaimonism, and it comes to us from Aristotle. And eudaimonism is understood by, in the 18th century, Immanuel Kant taught that eudaimonism, living into your own flourishing, was selfish. And he replaced eudaimonist ethics with deontological ethics, which is the ethics of duty that I think came to dominate Protestant Mm -hmm. ethics. Mm -hmm. And I offer an alternative to both extremes of ancient secular eudaimonism and ancient Christian agapism. So if we if we view eudaimonism as, I guess, a, a self-prioritizing framework that's about my happiness and agapeism as a self-sacrificing framework that's about only about others' well-being, not, not my own, <clears throat> you, you talk about this middle road that both of them really don't work. Um, and you, you call this middle road, the word you use in your writing is asherism. Um, can you just speak a bit about what that is, what this, this alternative you offer uh, is? So, so what I said earlier about the first word of the Psalter, which is often translated as happy but should be translated as blessed, or I think another, another good translation for this word, ashray, is privileged, that the Beatitudes really should read privileged, and so should the word in the Psalter. But anyway, that, that's an aside of my own translation. I took the word asherism from the Hebrew, not from the Greek, um, meaning that people who are privileged and honored by God to live a certain way is an alternative, a biblical alternative to both agapism and eudaimonism. Actually, I intended to be a form of faithful Christian eudaimonism, but I couldn't use that word because it's such a hot-button word for Christian ethics. So my, I, I trace the word um, ashray throughout scripture, and it appears a, a lot. And it means agapism is following commands of God, not in a voluntarist way, that God said it, I believe it, that's all, of blind obedience to divine command. That's how most divine command is read, as blind obedience. But actually, there are very, very few commands in the Bible that require blind obedience. Abraham's um, sacrifice of Isaac is one Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. She was told, don't turn back, and she did, and she was punished. The Garden of Eden, don't eat from that tree as a test 
of obedience. Um, there's one more in Joshua that I found. <laughs> but by and large, most biblical commands, hundreds of them, um, are not requiring blind obedience on the assumption that God knows what God is doing, and we just obey whether we understand it or not, even if it's immoral, as in the case of Abraham slaughtering his child. Um, But I believe that most biblical commands are guidelines for the kind of behavior that would make for flourishing communities. So, for example, Deuteronomy is filled with these asherist commands um, around sexuality, around building codes. Uh, There's one point in Deuteronomy, uh, it's a building code, that you, you should build your roof with a parapet so that and and if anybody's climbing on your roof uh, they must have been climbing on roofs we have the story of Zacchaeus being let down from the roof and this is all about how you build your thatched roof which must have been needing to be redone frequently because if somebody's on your roof like a workman is on your roof repairing your roof and he slips and falls he'll be caught on the parapet and he won't crash to the ground. And if you, he crashes to the ground because you disobeyed the building code, you are liable for his death. So that is a sampling, a guideline for how we should live. And I think that is true for m- most of the commands of the Bible. They are simply guidelines for what makes a way of life that supports the common good and the well-being of the community. It's a very um, different interpretation to the, as you mentioned, the very strict authoritarian, I guess, view that many people would get of, of the commandments in the Bible. And, you know, often when some of these older um, guidelines might be read that, that suited a context that is not our current context, we struggle to make sense of them. Sometimes people might interpret them as if they are for today's context, it can be quite difficult to to understand, I guess, how to read these commands. So, so when you are going through, um, I guess, scripture and you come across commands, you come across um, invitations, whatever it might be, what are the the questions, I guess, the filters that you ask to to determine is this one helpful for a flourishing life? So let's take one that pe- people don't really aren't particularly interested in anymore is the command not to eat what we call the showbread in the temple. Right? Don't touch it. Well, what's that about? Like, why are you going to, your body's going to burn up if you touch it? No. This is about charity. This is teaching charity because the priests had no other income. So this is to teach people to be good stewards. And listen, when stewardship, I don't know what month of the year your stewardship campaign comes. But that's what it's about, that we want well-functioning institutions. We don't want poverty. And you are to leave that, or the gleaning of the fields in Ruth. Ruth was sent out, and he, Boaz, instructed his workers not to glean the corners of the field. And that also comes from Deuteronomy. Why should you not cut the corners of your field? Because the poor people need that food. 
It's all about a charitable, a gracious, charitable way of living. Um, there's another one that I talked, uh, I think about in um, in in Joshua, when um, Achan steals money from the booty that was taken in war, and um, and his whole family is really severely punished. But what is the point? of saying nobody should steal from the booty captured in war. Well, say I go to a local um, store that has uh, garden equipment, you know, an, an outdoor store, and, and I need a, I really want a, a picnic table for my house. And I, um, and I, I go to the store, it's too expensive. I go to the park, and there's a picnic table that would be just beautiful on my back lawn. And I'm going to steal it. That's why Achan was punished. Because he was taking public property and stealing it for his own personal use. So what is the purpose of that command? Don't take from the booty of war, taken in war. It is not to destroy public property. And I think that's something that moderns should be able to understand. <laughs> so I think one only need, in most of these cases, scratch only very gently to see um, the humanitarian and social implications of many of these commands that seem opaque. I suppose at a core level, it's a wholly different framework uh, the initial framework that many are given is what does god require what does god demand what laws must i follow and this is a this is a wholly different faith framework this this is um reviewing it entirely how would That's you correct so how would you sum uh, this this framework up because okay. i guess it changes the way you read and interpret everything then that's correct thank you for understanding it's rare that two minds can actually connect. <laughs> um, I think that some parts of Christian piety and Islamic piety for that matter, I think as well, think that obedience to God will gain God's favor and you'll go to heaven and avoid hell. You'll avoid God's wrath by being obedient to these commands. And you're told not to have premarital sex or not to smoke or not to dance or whatever it is that your tradition frowns upon. Um, and you're told that obedience to these things will get you a reward in the future. And that's why it's called pie in the sky when you die, right? And that's the carrot. That And, and it is intended to supply uh, common, healthy, common, healthy societies, but it's based on fear. I think ultimately, and it, it is to instill uh, uh, constructive societies, but it's built on the desire of the individual to save himself or herself, right? It's very individualist ethics. But I think that at base, all these major religious traditions and ones that we haven't named yet. They're all about creating healthy societies. 
And the Christian way has been to focus on the fear of God, the, the re- fear of the wrath of God, the fear of hell. But I think that what is really more to the fore, at least biblically, and even in the younger, te- what I call the Younger Testament, is directly to instill a civic mentality in people where they're concerned for the common good and to orient society around virtues that enhance everyone. So my bottom line is it's not about getting individuals into heaven, which the way it's become for some parts of Christian piety, but how to be a constructive contributor to the common good. And it is the cultivation of those virtues through these commands, these Asherist commands, that I think form character in a way that wants to enhance um, the well-being, the health of the society. This whole notion would be quite foreign. Some might even laugh at it, I guess, if they are not from the church or they've been burned by churches as many have been or they're they're stuck in a church where they're quite they feel quite um, restricted. Um, this idea that actually the the initial intention of this faith journey was to give you the best, most abundant, flourishing life would be laughed at, because often the exact opposite, you know, is provided. What I'll oh, become a Christian that means I'm as you mentioned I won't be able to drink, party, you know, have sex with somebody I love unless I'm married to them. That's the there are these rules I'm going to have to follow. And I guess um, that's where we come to this idea of uh, being good rather than being happy, chasing moralism rather than chasing pleasure. And uh, I guess, is that the the basic divide, do you think, between um, the agape view and the um, eudaimonistic view? I see that as a false dichotomy because in living a morally enriching life that enriches your well-being by enhancing others' well-being, including the well-being of the earth, to, to do that does enhance one's strength of character, confidence in one's own abilities to participate in the cosmic redemption of the world that God has in mind. Um, And it gives a sense of personal contentment and enjoyment of one's own growth Mm -hmm. in constructive ways. So I think that the, to be laughed at, that the division between happiness and, and goodness is simply a false dichotomy. It doesn't work. Absolutely. I think there's been this this wrong split always between thinking that that if you're being good, therefore, then that that has to be a way of self-sacrifice and it's not the way of happiness. And I actually love, this is is one of your quotes, Ellen. It was, you said, it is our duty to flourish and so enjoy ourselves, enjoying God, enjoying us. And I love that cycle of, you know, that, that God takes great joy in God's creation and God's creation flourishing. And so our joy is also God's joy is also our joy is also God's joy in this never ending kind of, kind of spiral and too often the the that separation we still think we still think somehow 
um, if I'm unhappy, I must be getting it right spiritually. That's still, I think, a sneaky thought in the back of our head that there needs to be some some suffering involved and to, to actually open ourselves to grace to the extent that you could believe that God is enjoying us, enjoying being ourselves and flourishing. We often talk here about our baptismal promise is, is about growing to become your truer self, to become most fully yourself. Um, and that is what God takes joy in. I actually love there's a uh, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 85, um, where and it's and this quote comes up in um, Isaac Dennison's movie the the, the book the, the Babette's Feast, and I think that's a really great tale for and it says um, mercy and truth have met together righteousness and peace have kissed each other, and that joining together that that I think that speaks to that separation between um, goodness and and um, and joy too like that they that they are they can be they can live together um the idea that that in that movie that sometimes what you lay down comes back in a fuller more generous measure than you could possibly imagine because our god is an abundant god who longs to pour out those kind of blessings and joy um so if we can find out find our way back to how god's goodness is also our joy Mm. that'd be a marvelous thing it's a i guess in popular culture this this false dichotomy is you call it Ellen, is often displayed in, let's say, a, in a coming-of-age movie. You might have um, a, a late teenager who, on a Friday night, is invited to go and help out at a homeless ministry or go partying with their friends. And they're faced with what they think will be pleasurable versus what they feel is the right thing to do. Um, and, and inherently inbuilt in this idea of the right thing to do is, I will get less happiness from it, I will enjoy this less than I would the other, but this is what the good, right thing to do is. So I suppose would you say that actually it's it's a reviewing of seeing the good, right thing to do isn't about being obedient. It's actually the wisdom of showing that that often choosing the 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 way we the things we would put a higher moral judgment on. I guess you know giving, um, helping those in need. That actually choosing these actions will provide you with a richer happiness than you would have found elsewhere. Right. One thing that I do need to clarify, I'm not suggesting that there this understanding of flourish of a flourishing life does not mean that we don't suffer, mm. that we don't voluntarily even suffer and undergo things um, that are very unpleasant. Um, and you and in your uh, in Dom, in your uh, example of going to take care of somebody on Friday as going with your friends to get drunk. Um, You talked about it as pleasure. And I think what we need to do, and what I'm hoping I have done, is separate pleasure from happiness. Mm. Because that's a hedonic notion. And I'm really interested in a eudaimonic uh, understanding of flourishing. It's not just sensory pleasure, short-term sensory pleasure, um, may be, it is helpful in the long term, but it's not an end in itself. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I think people need to take care of themselves, enjoy pleasurable things in order to be equipped to do the unpleasant things that really build our character more and give us more contentment than going out to party. They, going out to party is pleasurable, but it doesn't give us contentment with ourselves the way 
my, the way uh, doing these other things. My children, when they were adolescents, I didn't know what to do with them for their spiritual life. So I sent them to a program um, in, in New York City that um, was to feed the homeless at Grand Central Station, which is, of course, one of the biggest uh, train stations in the country. And, and, and they would go and hand out and, and it's very wealthy people going in and out. And they would go and um, and hand out sandwiches to the poor. And that grew for them uh, from, from that activity to working in the soup kitchens of New York City. And, um, and it took them two hours to get to the soup kitchen, and they stood all day. And then it took them two hours to come home. Um, and... At the same time, I gave them all kinds of pleasurable opportunities in life so that they could see that they needed to be well-nourished spiritually, intellectually, and emotionally well-nourished in order to have the strength to stand all day in the soup kitchen and, um, and clean up the park and, and things like that. So I think we need to balance these things um, uh, I remember the time when I had two little ch- children and I was able to take a shower. <laughs> and right, all mothers know this. <laughs> well, even going to the loo by yourself is kind of nice. Even, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And, and that I did that because I needed to care for my own body in order to care for my children. And that's one piece in caring for others that's been lost in the Krishna tradition. I think it's interesting that the point you're making about pleasure too is fundamentally it's most pleasure is fleeting or has to be repeated again and again. And so, yes, having pleasure, we're not saying pleasure is bad, but, you know, if you have a, eat a great meal, it's not going to be so great that you never have to eat again, you know. And there has to be a space where, um, whether it's about food or sex, th- it has to be a space where we're looking for something that's not just that fleeting, pleasurable encounter that is actually more meaningful, you know. And, and so in your description of talking about going and feeding the homeless and being able to stand for hours and hours which was negating that pleasure for that time um you know that's an example of 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 choosing something that has the greater meaning and the greater purpose whilst not turning your back on not saying we're never going to experience pleasure again um you know because but being aware of the fleeting nature and that that there are things that have to be that are repeated and are not necessarily where the real life and the real joy is i um i use that precisely that point to suggest that um, while short-term pleasures don't add to our character, they just have to be redone in order to maintain a kind of equilibrium in life. But I believe that having gone into the soup kitchens of New York was a strength that my children took forward with them forever. It built them their sense of contentment and knowledge of who they are and what they can do, that they can make a difference, even if it's in a, sm- in, in a small way, and that that gave them an orientation toward life that is building up their own sense of contentment with who they are and created 
a better society on the outside. That does stay with us, mm -hmm. and we build on it in opportunity after opportunity, whereas, you know, a, a, a good meal may build us up, too, in a different way, but it, it's not the same character formation that I think these other things do. So if someone uh, had an appointment with you, Alan, they walked into your office and they said, um, I'm unhappy in my life, um, not necessarily in a big mental health struggle way, but I'm just, I just feel a bit flat, I feel a bit stale, I've you know, got the house, got the family, got the job, everything's going okay, but I just feel a bit unhappy. What would you say to them, the wisdom that the Christian tradition can give them about how they can review their life and, and find a deep happiness? I'll give you a more extreme example from my own life. In, um, in 1991, a friend of mine was murdered. And she was murdered by her 16-year-old foster son, who I knew and had been trying to teach in church school for five years. And when she died, uh, and he was guilty, he did murder her, and he was put away for life sentence, plus five, life sentence plus five, for aggravated felony murder. And I went to take care of him. And I've been taking care of him all this time. And um, I'm his mother, his priest, his friend, his financier, <laughs> whatever. And so he's the person who comes into my office and says, I am not happy. And I tried to tell him the opportunities that he had in prison to overcome the fact that he had become a savage. And, and he said one time, he said, why are you doing this? I said, because I'm doing it to finish the work that she started because she wanted to save one child. And she failed, and then I just went to finish her work. And w one day he asked me these questions, and what can I do? And I told him that the best way to heal himself was to take care of others in the prison. And he had been thinking of himself as a victim of a very, very destructive childhood and mother and the whole all the stereotypes you've ever put, that's all him. And I said, he needs to take care of others. He went to work on the psych unit as an orderly on the psych unit, working with the really sick people. Um, he organized a literacy program inside the prison. He tried to instigate, uh, to start uh, inmates giving food to the poor. I don't think he was allowed to do that. But he eventually came to see that in undertaking these activities, he would be healing himself. And I can't say happiness, but he, he says to me now, I'm good. I'm okay. And he's no longer feeling sorry for himself as a victim. And why has this happened to me? And he's seeing it as an opportunity 
for his own healing of his soul and his life and helping enhance the well-being of others. And I wrote these books with him in the front of my mind. Somewhat speechless after that. That's incredible. It's it. And it, it is so different when you frame it like that, the the giving of yourself to others. That is so radically different from the self-sacrifice model that we spoke about earlier on, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, it is. I went to take care of him, of course, to finish her work. That's all true. But I also, I don't think I realized this, realized this when I took up this ministry, in 1990, well, it was before 1991. It must have been 1885. What? 1985. Um, I also did it because I had to prove to myself that my theology could actually touch the ground. Because living in an ivory tower all my life, we spin up all kinds of really beautiful ideas. But I had to know, I mean, I, I became a theologian to help people know love and God and enjoy God better and if it wasn't working then I would have to quit I I wasn't trained to write footnotes to great theologians you know I was trained to correct problems in the Christian tradition you, you do say that your theology has largely been informed from being a mother um, what, what, what do you mean by that well, I think you can see it in this care of my foster son. Um, I did become his mother, uh, his his practical, in all practical sense, his mother. Um, and in my own um, mothering of my children, um, they had a fabulous father too until cancer took him. Um, but it is. Being unconditionally committed to your children and being unconditionally committed to your children includes tough love. That is being committed to your children, to help children see the boundary lines and, um, and skills needed and activities that are destructive of well-being. And so one has to help frame those things for children and um, and I think that's what my understanding of Asherist commands does, uh, uh, that it enables us to internalize general principles of a good life that we can recognize and apply, and they lateralize. I mean, we don't build roofs like that now, you know, with, um, you know, to keep people with thatched roofs. So... But the principle withstands. There's another example. It, I think it's also in Deuteronomy, of um, of a man whose animal falls into a pit on the Sabbath, and the question is, are you allowed to rescue the animal on the Sabbath? And um, and my daughter had an example of um, on her way home from work. She found a dog lost in the middle of a inter busy intersection, and she parked her car because she didn't want the animal to get hurt. And she took the dog by the collar and 
started look leading it around somewhere and the dog finally found the scent of home and he led her to her his house and they knocked she locked on the door and the family was just thrilled and the dog was so thrilled jumped on her in thanksgiving so that to me is a contemporary application of that principle that if your neighbor's ox falls into a pit what do you do why you need to return it to its rightful owner and not keep it because you found it. So I think that that is an Asherist command. It's not about them, it's about us. And my daughter's self-confidence was enhanced because at first she called her very new husband at the time and said, what should I do? He said, call the animal rescue squad. She did not listen to him. She did what she did on her own, and that built her confidence, her success built on itself and strengthened her to continue to strengthen others as she met them. And I think the beauty of that example is that it's showing she's taking responsibility for that moment in time when she finds herself in that dog, but she's also it's pointing to the fact that the sort of um, deep peace and, and joy we're, we're describing that, that can happen in life is actually all relational too, isn't it? It's about how we live on this planet with one another and with God and all creation. And so, yes, happiness on its own for my own sake is, you know, it's ephemeral. We can't grasp it. It will always be, disappear in front of us. If that's my main goal in life is to be happy for myself and I try to work out exactly how I can achieve that, it will slip away. But if we actually live on this planet aware of one another aware of the loving relationships that that uh, tie us and all the relationships we can't see that still connect us whether it be just with that dog in the neighborhood that we can help find that way home you know that that's always about about connection and what she drew from that is about the, the relationships there when I first wrote this in my book I wrote her as an example people were annoyed why do you take such a trivial example and I said well, they didn't get it, you know, they didn't just didn't get it. I said, it's the most trivial things that we have opportunities for every day. It's not the great heroic deed. There was a man who, uh, I don't know if you saw it in the papers in the United States, there was a man who subdued a potential killer. And he was taken immediately to the White House and fed it and all this. He said, I didn't do anything. It's just what anybody would do. He refused to be honored. It's interesting, I guess, because you speak about tough love and, and it does make me think how deeply embedded the fear monologues are, how deeply embedded the do the right thing, you don't want to mess up here, um, tapes can be in our heads and, and how often the motivator can be fear that, oh, okay, well, I won't do this or I will do this because uh, largely because of fear rather than because of the invitation of, no, this will provide you you know, with you, with your most flourishing life, how do you go about? And I'm, this is a difficult question, but how do you go about changing the motivations for changing the? Because you, it might be the it might be the same action that you undertake um, as it would have been under the fear <laughs> motivation, but for an entirely different reason. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think so. It might be the same behavior. Um... But it's not to avoid punishment. It's to be obedient to God's command that we uh, 
mend the world <laughs> and that God wants us to flourish and God flourishes, as Sue read from, my, from there, that God flourishes when we flourish because he, God wants the creation to flourish. And um, that's one way I try to talk to people to say, what God do you believe in? Do you believe in a God who wants his own handiwork to flourish? Or do you want a God who is happy for the creation to languish and you languish as part of it? I mean, that's a basic theological understanding of the nature of God. And I think most people I talk to find it difficult finally. They kind of stop at the idea that God wants the creation to languish. And I said, well, if you, if you think that God doesn't want us to languish, what does God want from the creation? Um, I've been, you know, I've been teaching for many decades, and I've tried to help students make this transition, and it is difficult. But I've had Christianly, I've had students come to me who are victims of Christian malpractice, and they're broken. And my job has been to offer them something that will heal. I've also had students come to me and say they've been so trained in deconstruction, you know, contemporary philosophy, that, and, and one student sat in my office, he said, all I read was deconstruction in undergraduate school, and now I have nothing. And he just sat in my office you know, wanting something. So I think this has to, people have to be ready to hear something entirely different. And I think it comes at people's, in people's lives at different times. And sometimes your own personal narrative will say, what's this? Why are we doing this? When my husband died, I was faced with the possibility, and it was completely irrational, it was completely irrational, that God was punishing me in my husband's death because I had become a Christian. And that was a grave sin. And I couldn't shake it. I mean, I knew it was bad theology, and I'm a theologian. I knew it was the worst theology I could have taught myself, and I could not shake it for a very long time. So I wrote this theology <laughs> for myself. And I think that other people have moments in their lives when they need something like this, and it will be on the shelf in some libraries. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, the deconstructing thing that you, you're, you're raising there. I think um, I'd like to think of the deconstructing is the reconstructing it's it's about the way we uh, way we take it and i guess what i mean by that is that you have to you bring in a new lens as you're pulling it out you are seeing it with a new way so sort of the way we've been talking about seeing, reading scripture with a new lens you know that deconstructing the old way of understanding that but at the same time we are seeing it with new eyes so that the the new sight is important and i think that's important when it comes to our emotions too i think our the way we read our emotions guilt is something that can be overwhelming when it becomes often because it's become shame 
and shame is such a negative and destructive emotion that that uh, that people can struggle with and it can rob them of their own self-worth. Whereas if you take something like a guilt emotion in in the past, and in, hopefully in the past, in the church, it's often twisted to, you know, well, you've just got to confess harder or be more sorry. But what if, you know, it, I think taking guilt as a sort of a signpost or a prophet to us, and so here's the new lens, is to say, no, it's not about me being a dirty, rotten sinner and I'm never going, you know, and I'm not going to measure up. That's the old transactional idea of the way we relate to God. Instead, it's thinking, okay, I'm feeling guilty. You know, what, what, what does that actually say about what I value and what is important to me? Uh, a very easy example I've heard is, you know, the, you know, if I'm feeling guilty for not having spent enough time with my children, that's probably because really close relationships with my children is really important to me. And so you read that as the prophet and go, right, well, okay, then, then how do I address that? And that's seeing it in, in a new lens. And I mean, that's, it, there are other examples that have, have a more, you know, a more of a moral dagger to the heart in our lives sometimes that we have guilt about. But we can still take the time to say, who am I? You know, what do I really value? And here's the becoming, becoming ourself and, and God, our, our own flourishing is part of what we value the most. So who am I? What do I value? And how do I notice that feeling, that emotion of guilt and allow it to point me back to my own flourishing and to that of others around me? It is interesting, I guess, as someone who's grown up in the church, and I think many people uh, who, who have, whether they are still in a church environment or not, um, Ellen, they'll, they'll very much uh, they'll agree with what you said there. They'll have similar experiences that even no matter how theologically um, learned they might have become or how deep into this tradition they might have gone, you'll still catch yourself in moments being like, oh, is this a punishment? Or, oh, is, is God mad at me? Or the, these questions that you, you might know go against, the, are, are not consistent with the tradition you believe in and, and what has given you life. But these, these uh, Sue, you've called them the, the tapes, I think, numerous times in your head on the podcast before. They're so strong, and I've, I've even seen it in myself that, you know, very Sunday school type beliefs of, oh, did, did for, uh, for example, a woman I was interested in who wasn't interested in me back, was she not interested in me back because I haven't been obedient or because I've been doing the wrong thing? Or did I not get that job because I didn't pray about it? Or they, they're so difficult they're so deeply embedded in how a lot of us are taught a faith life that these are really tricky things to overcome aren't they they're very difficult to overcome um i i once had a student many many years ago and she had some mental health problems and she was hospitalized and i called her on the phone uh, or she called me and you know for some guidance and she thought that God was punishing her and so on. And, you know, there it was um, in the hospital. And she said the hospital personnel thought she was lying about her mental disturbance. And that was guilt and confusion and disaster. And I said, I told her about the fact that she's created in the image of God and that she wants, God wants her to use the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is given to her in baptism, at least in my tradition, that's how we do it. Um, and the power of the Holy Spirit in her life is fighting for her, not against her. 
and the strength of God has been given to you. So I think it comes, you know, in little discrete moments that we can say, oh, this theology ringing in my head is not helping me. And is there another way of thinking about this that I can see God as my companion rather than as my enemy? And that's why I spent um, 27 or close to 30 years teaching theological students who were going to be ministers of the church so that they might have something different. It's it's hilarious the superstitious cause and effect type mentality. Um, I even realized it in myself uh, just this week. I, I support a, a local football team here, and I've somehow I've realized I've subconsciously now consciously come to believe that how well they play on the weekend is determined by how well I perform at my job throughout the week. Um, because I noticed one or two weeks I performed poorly and they performed very poorly and then I performed well and they performed well. And this became quite a deeply embedded belief that, oh, I've had a bad week at work. My football team's going to struggle. And this, this, I don't know what it is about the human psyche that makes us buy into this. Perhaps it's a control it's thing. my fault. Yeah. It's all my fault. Right. Right. I had a great expa- example of that. Uh, we had very bad winter storms this year where I live in the United States. And... Um, I, my husband and I had been away for the weekend and all the power was out. So we had to go home and it took us, instead of an hour to get there, it took us three and a half hours to get home because of all da 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 da. And we got home and I was putting my things away from my, uh, you know, my suitcase. And, and it was a quarter to nine in the evening and there was a huge crash outside and all the power went out in the house and I immediately blamed myself because I had some I thought I had plugged in something wrong and that the power had gone off and I was responsible turned out an enormous tree who the, the, the circumference of the tree was over a meter to probably two meters in diameter had fallen on the neighbor's house and had crushed all the wires, you know, so that we had no, we had no heat for a week and no power. And I was blaming myself. (laughs) It's a bizarre thing that humans do. And um, I guess the message here is that it really doesn't have place in a faith life. It works its way in there very easily. Um, you know, someone of, uh, in, of no faith might say that, I don't know, the energy of the universe the, is against me or whatever it might be. But, you know, we'll, in the Christian tradition, use the language, God hasn't given me this. Oh, why did God do this? And and I guess this whole thing is that that's a very unhelpful motivation. That's that's going to lead you um, away from a flourishing life if right. you work by that motivation. Right, right. Entirely. And once you see that it's destructive of yourself and your well-being, then you realize you need to look for some alternative. And that's what I'm putting out is an alternative to that. But you have to be ready and able to hear it. So in summary, I guess then, Ellen, if, if people were listening to this podcast and feeling somewhat 
uh, as I used the example earlier, but maybe stale, maybe thinking they're they're not they're they're not content in their life. Whether they have a faith journey or they or they're not of faith or whatever it is, they just feel like this is they're not living as they are meant to be living. They feel what whether it be empty or just dissatisfied. Um, you have lived quite an incredible life and have gathered some amazing wisdom, and we're grateful for what you've you've shared with us today on that front. But from all of that, what would you say to somebody who is like, where do I begin? What what what's the what's the first step in trying to find a, move towards a more content life? This this new idea of happiness. What what should I do? How should I reframe my my thinking? We had a lot of those people come to seminary, attorneys and physicians especially, um, businessmen, at women, business people. They'd made their mark in their professional life, military people even, and they wanted something more. And that's what they came to study theology. And I think when you find people who are stale or burnt out um, and think they have no spiritual resources to use to reconstruct themselves. That That's important. You have to believe that you have resources. Or like I said to my stu- psychiatrically disabled student, you have to believe that God has given you from outside through grace um, and has given you strengths that are not your own. That's why for me, the gift of the Holy Spirit in chrismation, now back to connected to baptism, or confirmation, or however it's done, that you are signed and marked by the Holy Spirit as Christ's own forever. That's the more or less the words of our liturgy. That I encourage people to see that they have a strength that they don't know they have. And that it enables, and if they know that they are created in the divine image, and so is every other human being on the face of the earth, I try to motivate people to see that there is great opportunity for them to build the kingdom of God, and that they have resources for themselves and skills that they can employ. Like I just, we have a, there's a big knitting ministry in the church. I don't know if you do the knitting ministry, but there are women who still know how to knit. And they knit shawls, prayer shawls, and they distribute them to all the sick in the parish or the neighborhood or whatever. And they are using the skills that they have, that they enjoy, that gives them personal pleasure to pray for others in a meaningful way. There are all kinds of things. I think it requires utilizing people's real-life skills because if you use people's real-life skills like knitting or gardening or, I don't know, what other carpentry work, whatever your interest or skill might be, um, if you can then put that to use for the well-being of the community, then you start to rebuild yourself from being burnt out. 
And I think there's a connection there with the, the very new age idea of follow your bliss. You know, that idea that people would and, – and the problem with that is, that of course, it got all mixed up with pleasure – and, and and missed the kind of deeper meanings that we're talking about here where um, we're actually living in a way that brings you joy. You don't need to have some wowserist part of your subconscious come out and say, oh, you're having fun, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, the, to be actually living into that joy, using your gifts, using your talents, enjoying the fact that it, it things do give you pleasure and they also might give you lasting fulfilment and they give you the joy of relationships um, and using your gifts for others, all of that is, is mixed in together. So instead of a very thin idea of follow your bliss, we've got a, a much deeper, richer idea of, of living with joy. So I think that this can be immediately applied within the church. I don't know about Australia, but in the United States, pa- uh, grandparents and grandchildren are often set, uh, separated by huge distances and sometimes by family problems. And I think that there are lots of families in congregations who have grandparent-type people and children who are deprived of their grandparents and need a buffer. Grandparents are a buffer between parents and children. And um, I think it, a, a ministry of the church might be to identify parishioners, older parishioners, with skills and abilities and connect them up with young people where they can teach a class in carpentry or, I don't know, guidance in music or playing golf or whatever it is that will create a relationship, cross-generational relationship, and give the child skills. One of my favorite American painters is Henry Asawa Tanner, and he was an incredible painter. Um, early 20th century. And he has a series of paintings of older people teaching younger people. The most famous one is the banjo player. And he's giving a young child, he's obviously elderly, he's giving the young child a banjo lesson who's sitting on his lap. Um, There's another one called the sabot maker of the same thing. And there are several others of teaching. And in every case, Tanner sheds the light on the child and not on, even though they're at close range in the, in the painting and not on the one giving, but on the one receiving. And you see that the children are being built up and the teachers, the grandparent is finally able to give his art, his gift to the future. And I think that would be a fabulous way for people to break out of the silos and the deprivation that they have. And I suppose that's beautifully what is meant about it is more blessed uh, to give than to receive rather than somebody who looks burnt out from giving too much. That's the alternate picture right there. Well, that's been a a beautiful conversation. So uh, thank you so much for your time, Sue and Ellen. It's been great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Dom. Thank you for having me. It's just been delightful. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.